I thoroughly enjoy preaching at Christmas. Now, I enjoy preaching all the time, but there is something about Christmas um, that especially excites me because I think, and this is true all the time, so don't hear, I'm not trying to say this not true all the time, but especially at Christmas, I feel like we have a, a unique opportunity as pastors and as preachers to appeal and to speak to both the heart of our congregation and the head of our congregation because there's so much about Christmas that's historical and it's written in the Bible. And so we can bring strong proof uh, to, to what the message of the gospel is. And so I think that's probably why I love Christmas preaching so much. Um, in a word, I'd say it to you like this, that... that that I love it because Christmas preaching is so different than perhaps what we see around us, which is Christmas production. Now, now just follow me for a minute. I mean, Christmas production is very imaginative. It's fictional. It's magical, uh, fantastical. And we just see that all around us, Christmas productions. I mean, think about it. Your naughtiness or niceness is tracked all year long. How does that work? Who does that, right? Uh, reindeer fly, and one's got a red nose to boot that lights the way. Uh, if you kiss under a leafy plant with berries, you have a greater chance of peace and love. Uh, there's a mystical train called the Polar Express that's going to roar by. And an angel named Clarence apparently got his wings because he helped a struggling businessman named George. Like, like let's just be honest, those aren't real, right? They're, they're productions, they're fiction, they're imaginative, they're invented. That's their point. They're creating a fictional narrative. In the plainest of language, it's just not true. Now, now hear me well, I'm not against imagination. I actually think it's God-given. And it's a helpful, fun aspect of the human experience, especially when you're a child. Make-believe is not wrong. Creativity, allegory, fiction, they're legitimate tools of production, of literature. But hear this, church, preaching is not production. Preaching is proclamation. Amen. It's an announcement of what God has said and done in real time and space. It's not invented stories, it's delivered news. Amen. And so Christmas preaching is actually unimaginative. <laughs> it's not fictional, it's factual. It's rooted in places, in people, in events. It's what we call history, and I might add, as a pastor, it's God's history. And it's what Scripture describes um, as the story of Christ's coming. And it has places and people that can be visited, that can be researched, that can be um, talked about. Uh, they've been seen. They've been witnessed. It's been reported. And so this is why I so enjoy Christmas preaching, because it's an annual rehearsing of biblical history. And that sources our joy and fuels our celebrations. It's not a make-believe world of fantasy designed to help us feel nostalgic for a few weeks. It's true life facts about God 
using normal processes and people and places to introduce himself into the human race, the man we know to be Jesus Christ. It's the supernatural wrapped in the natural. It's God's truth being revealed in human time and space. And Luke does a masterful job of this in the second chapter of his book. Will you turn there? It's the third book of the New Testament, Luke chapter 2. And today, as well as on Christmas Eve and next Sunday, December 26, I want us to take a look at the truth of Christmas. The reality of this season, not the mythical or the magical, not the fantastical. Instead, the factual, the historical, the actual. And my goal is to take a look at the first three paragraphs of Luke chapter 2. It's about verses 1 to 20. We'll look at these over the next three weeks that we gather, one paragraph each time we gather, and we'll look at one single truth from each paragraph each time. And my hope is that as you look at the truth of Christmas, it will further ground you as a believer as you celebrate Advent or the first coming of Jesus. But I also hope that it will garner the attention of unbelievers to seriously consider the veracity of the Bible the claims of Christ, and that you will believe in the one who came as a real baby in a real town to real parents in a real family as the real son of God who died for real sinners so they could have a real relationship with the real God of the universe. So follow along with me. Luke chapter two, verses one to seven. I'll read the Bible says this, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Some of your Bibles may say taxed. It was a registration in order to be taxed. This was the first uh, registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Part of the all was a man named Joseph. Verse four, he also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He went there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came. Will you just circle that phrase, those three words, underline it, put a star by it, make a special note in your Bible. The time came. For her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Luke does a masterful job here of, of bringing two things in, uh, to our attention and then merging them very uniquely. Those two things are history and prophecy. And they speak very pointedly to us at Christmas. Can I just bring some thoughts about those two things and show you how they'll lead us to a single truth this morning about Christmas? First of all, let's talk a bit about the history in this text. You know, Luke does a couple things here. He names rulers and he narrows geography. Just follow me. You see, first of all, in verse one, Caesar Augustus, historical figure, documented, uh, a Roman emperor, he reigned from about 27 AD till about four, excuse me, 27 BC till about 14 AD. In fact, every 14 years, the Roman emperors would take a census. And there are historical documents that show uh, Caesar actually 
inscribing and making notes about the census. So we have historical um, reality here about a world ruler, uh, uh, Caesar Augustus. He also mentions Quirinius as a governor of Syria. Here's another historical figure, kind of a tag, a, a landmark during this time, kind of showing us the, the dates. Now, Quirinius was alive and was either in uh, a militarily authoritative position in this region or later he did become the governor. I tell you that because there is some debate about Quirinius. Was he the governor at this time or just after this time? Some think that the word when in verse two is better translated before. So I'll let you research that and debate that. You make your own opinion. None of that changes the real point of the text that there was a historical man named Quirinius during this time. And what Luke is doing is he's tying these world leaders, he's kind of using them as tags, as, as points of um, proof to say, hey, just as you know that Quirinius was alive and, and uh, leading, just as you know uh, Caesar Augustus was alive and was the world leader, the Roman emperor, I mean, in the same fashion, in the same historical manner, Jesus Christ was born. And he actually uses these names, I think, to give us some time frames. As I said, uh, Caesar Augustus, he ruled 27 BC to AD 14. We know that Quirinius was ruling in some fashion in this region during this time. If you go to Matthew 2, you see Herod mentioned there. Herod um, ruled and he died about 4 BC. So you kind of put all this in a blender and let it come out. What you're gonna find is that we can give a pretty accurate date and maybe I could say year to Christ's birth. Some of you have birth dates, or all of you have a birth date. Christ had a birth year. And we probably think it was between 6, 5, or 4 BC. And we do that because of these historical names, Matthew 2, Luke 2. And I just want to say this to you. Just as sure as Caesar Augustus and Quirinius are documented historical facts, and, uh, and people like Josephus, as historian, knew that and labeled them, Jesus Christ was real in time and space in history. He was actually born. So Luke not only names rulers, he also narrows geography. I like the way he does this. I, I think I know why, but let me just give you my thought on this. He goes from world in verse one, do you see that? To Syria in verse two, and then own town in verse three. He kind of narrows this down, doesn't he? He starts with world events, comes down to maybe regional and then very local. I think his point may be this. He's saying to those individuals who'd be reading, hey, here's what's happening. Here's what's embedded in the world stage, but it affects every one of us individually, including a man named Joseph. And so he gives these names and these places, these people, to show us that this is actual time and space, historical realities. He's verifying this account. To use a plain word, he's proving that Christ was born. Now, this is exactly what will happen to uh, me and Julie in about 10, 12 days. We'll go over to Michigan. We'll celebrate uh, 33 years of marriage in the town where we got married, Adrian, Michigan. We'll be seeing her mom, her family. And while we're there, if you were to come with us, we could take you to the church in which we got married. We can introduce you to people who were at the wedding. We could take you to the restaurant we had the rehearsal dinner at, the Brass Lantern. We could go to the Lenaway Christian Center where we had the reception for those who came. Uh, I, I could show you this watch that she gave me a couple of nights before our wedding. I could take you to the house where she grew up. We sat in that house and 
We exchanged Christmas gifts. This is the actual watch she gave me. It doesn't work, but I still have it. I mean, these are proofs that Todd and Julie got married. No matter what you would say, you could deny, you could be agnostic about our marriage. You could actually be a, a Styles marriage atheist. You can say whatever you want, but the reality is, watch this, I can take you to people and places and prove to you we got married. Luke, in these first few verses, is taking us to people and places and proving that Jesus Christ was born. Now, what he does, he doesn't leave this just with history. He now begins to merge with that prophecy which you could say, I mean, all history is God's history, but you could say that the sense of prophecy here is now God's story coming to fruition at a specific time. How does he do that? Look with me about verse four as he begins to make a subtle shift from like world rulers and places. He now begins to mention rulers and places that are particular to Israel. Notice he mentions the city of David in verse four. I think that's when it really begins to get specific. And then he talks about Bethlehem. And then the key phrase, the house and lineage of David. So David's mentioned at least twice here. Now, any reader who reads this and sees the name David, and then the phrase, the house and lineage of David, they're gonna think about Israel's greatest king. They're gonna know immediately, wow, that, that was the heyday of Israel. That, that's when it was really good but they're also gonna think about the anticipation of the one who would sit on the throne of David because that's what was prophesied for hundreds of years. He was called the son of David. And so as the reader, us, as we read this, these things are brought to mind that there's one who is still to come. In fact, look at verse seven with me. You see the word son there? I think the, the, the reader sees this and thinks about Isaiah seven and Isaiah nine in which it was prophesied and promised that a son would be born, a child would be given. And so suddenly they're moving just from, his, not just, they're seeing not just historical data, they're sensing prophetic elements. That, oh, you're saying that what's happening in front of us in real time and space historically was actually the culmination of all that God promised for hundreds of years? That this baby is the one that, would be the, the Messiah? This is what Zechariah knew. Look just back in chapter one. He prophesied this before Christ was born. He says that the one to be born would be the, the horn of salvation, verse 69, in the house of his servant David. Now, this is what God would do. This is what God would give. And verse 70 says, this is what he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So are you seeing these two things happening? History and prophecy are now merging together. Luke's painting a picture of both of these things happening. Here's the world stage, here's Israel's stage, they're coming together, it's God's story, it's God's plan, and they're merging, they're culminating. And the birth of this child, this baby boy in Bethlehem, is the long way to Messiah that God promised for hundreds of years. So Luke is melding and merging history and prophecy. And he's asserting that the one born in Bethlehem is the long-awaited Messiah. Now, we don't need, and I say this technically and theologically, we don't need any more evidence than that because God speaks truth, he is truth, so he declares the truth, it's right. So we can actually take our stand just on that. But 
for those who sometimes need like, well, of course that's circular reasoning, Todd. You're going to say God said it so it's true. And so there's no way you can you know, ever be proven wrong, so to speak. But is there other ways we can affirm what you're saying? That yes, history and prophecy are meeting. This one born in Bethlehem is the one that was promised. Like, are there other affirmations to that? Well, let's just do that for a moment. Let's think about prophecy. Let's affirm what's going on here, maybe through a statistical way. In fact, will you go to class with me for a second? Will you go to probability class? Go back years. Let's pull out, for this class, a special reference. Let's pull out Alfred Edersheim's work of the 1800s, The Life and Times of Jesus Christ the Messiah. In there, he lists 457 messianic uh, prophecies in the Old Testament that all came true in Christ. Now, in all candor, some see less than that, 300, 350, 380, 420. The, the number exactly is not the point because folks use different filters. I've never read anyone who believes there's less than 300 prophecies. I think Alfred Edersheim takes the cake at 457. That's a lot. But somewhere in this range, there are hundreds of Old Testament verses that describe an aspect of Christ, and yet they wrote this hundreds of years before Christ was ever born. Let's just take eight that relate to his birth. There are more, but let's just take eight. They're on the screen behind me. And notice how these eight actually get more and more specific, okay? These are prophecies about the baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus, hundreds of years before he was born. That he would be born of the seed of a woman, that he'd be born of the seed of Abraham. Now watch this, not just Abraham, but then Abraham's son, Isaac, but not just Isaac, but Abraham's son, Jacob. And out of Jacob's sons, it had to be the fourth one, Judah, then out of Judah's, uh, many folks in his tribe had to be the line of David. So it's really narrowing, isn't it? This woman, she would be a virgin and there would be a specific town named Bethlehem. So some very specific uh, parameters regarding this prediction, these prophecies, you can call them promises. My question then is this, what's the probability that one person would fulfill every one of these when he was born? Well, the answer will astound you. It's one in 10 with 17 zeros behind it. I don't even know what that number's called. I'll just call it 10 with 17 zeros. Can you live with that? That's a large number. Now, how large is that number? Let me see if I can give you a visual. Statisticians and some geographers have estimated that if you were to take 10 with 17 zeros behind it, silver dollars, and just... uh, throw them among the, in the state of Texas, you would fill up about an area the size of Texas two feet deep. That's what statisticians and geographers say. The probability looks like this. If I blindfolded you, after marking one of those coins, Jesus Christ the Messiah, and I threw it in that pile of 10 with 17 zeros behind it, I threw it in that big pile that covers state of Texas two feet deep. And then I blindfolded you and I said to you, you've got one chance to find the coin I marked, Jesus Christ the Messiah. You could travel anywhere you want in the state, but you get one draw. The chance that you'll pick up the coin that I marked, Jesus Christ the Messiah, is one, uh, is 10 with 17 zeros behind it. Now, all of you are thinking, impossible. You're right. It's theoretically, practically impossible. And yet, That's exactly what Jesus Christ did when he was born and fulfilled every one of these prophecies. 
which says to me, the truth that he was God's son, the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, is irrefutable statistically. You don't accidentally fulfill these. You intentionally, supernaturally are sent by God to be the Messiah. And here's what's so amazing. That's just eight. How many messianic prophecies are there? There's at least how many? 300. There could be as many as what? 457. I don't even know the number in that probability study. It's way outside of your mind and mine, but it's not outside of God's or his power. So do you see what's happening here? This is a beautiful moment in which we see the supernatural power of God on display in bringing to us his son, Jesus. And this is not like a coincidence. It's not like, oh, that's just really uncanny. No, it's supernatural. It's prophecy and history culminating perfectly over 2,000 years ago in one believable and bold moment. And that was the birth of Jesus Christ. Church, hear this. What was predicted was proven. The factual reality is that at the perfectly predicted time, the perfect Son of God was born in Bethlehem. God became flesh at just the right time and in just the right way. So here's what Luke's saying to us. Using history and prophecy, he's saying to us this simple truth, that Christmas is history and prophecy culminating in God's perfect time and God's perfect Son, Christ. So ponder that for a moment and realize that this simple sentence is echoed by the Apostle Paul. The text of Luke 2, 1 to 7, Paul reaffirms this. You know the phrase in verse 6 that the time came? That's what we're speaking of. This perfect time when all of history and all of prophecy culminated, it merged in just the precise, exact, perfect moment for Christ to be born and fulfill everything that God said. After all, 2 Corinthians 1 says this, that all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. So this is amazing that at this moment, it's not just some mythical assertion we're making to feel good in this time of year. It's factual, historical. It's evidential. I would say to you today, it's statistical. It's, it's amazing what God has done in fulfilling his word and keeping his promise and merging both prophecy and history at the perfect time and in the perfect person, Christ. And Paul echoes this in Galatians 4. Luke used the phrase, the time came. Paul would use the phrase, in the fullness of time. Look at this verse with me. He says, but in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Now I'll say more on this week's podcast about these two phrases. The fullness of time and God sending forth his son. There's a lot to those. It speaks of the right time, the right way, obviously the perfect person. All those are kind of combined in that. I just want you to know today that that is Christmas. It's the right time. It's the fullness of time. It's the time coming. It's, it's God moving in time and it's God moving over time to bring us Christ the Messiah. And that's exactly what Luke 2, watch this, that's exactly what Luke 2 historically and prophetically proves. So will you say this with me, church? The simple truth on this first time we're in Luke 2 here this year, together. Christmas is history and prophecy 
culminating in God's perfect time and God's perfect son, Christ. Now we can take this sentence and use it to sum up these seven verses, but is there a word that we could use to sum up this sentence? There is. And it's the core doctrine at Christmas. It's the word incarnation. Say it with me, would you? Incarnation. I mean, this is what Christmas is all about. So seven verses, one sentence, truly one word. It means enfleshing. It's when God came and dwelled with man. John would describe it this way. He says, the word was with God and the word was God. And then later he says, the word became flesh or incarnated and dwelled among us or pitched his tent among us. That's what Christmas is. And the incarnation is the culminating merge of both history and prophecy. So church, rest assured on this and let me be as clear as I can be. We don't follow an imagined myth. We haven't produced a Christmas story. We haven't invented a holiday legend or fantasy. We are announcing reliable, proven, historical reality. Proven, documented history that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Now, what is our response to this text and this merging of history and prophecy and this assertion proved in a number of ways? Statistically, historically, prophetically. What should we do in response to that? I think there are several. Let me walk you through them briefly. First of all, believe boldly. I want to speak for a minute to those who have yet to believe in the truth of the gospel. Whether you're listening or watching today, or maybe it's a few months or even years after this actual event. Maybe it's someone in this room. But you're still somewhat skeptical you, you would say, I'm, you, maybe you're more of an agnostic, and you're not militant, you're not combative, but you just, you haven't bought it yet. You're like, I don't, I don't know. My prayer is this morning that you have seen not only historical facts, prophetic fulfillment, but you've even seen the statistical, uh, you've been astounded, like, I can't believe it would be that impossible, and yet God did that. He is real, he is true, he is right In every way, my prayer is that you will no longer think it's like a leap in the dark. This is an informed step of trust. God has moved in real time and space. And you, because of this account and what he's given us in the scriptures, you can believe boldly. I had a lady say to me just after the last service, she met me right down here and she was in tears. And she said, I just want to thank you for telling me the truth. She goes, I've been coming for about two months She goes, I've been searching for this my whole life. She said, I'm 58 years old. I've been wondering, like, what's really true? And she's, I mean, she was thanking me, but the truth is, I told her, I said, you know what you're treasuring? She said, my heart is changing. She goes, I'm finding new appetites. She goes, something's happening to me. I just told the Lord, I said, show me yourself. Show me Jesus. I believe. She goes, God's changing me. And I said, what you're starting to treasure is Jesus. That's what you've been searching for. That's what your heart longed for was a relationship with God through Jesus. She goes, yes. She's in tears just saying thank you. And I'll never forget those words. 
I've been searching for this my whole life. Living right here in the metro area, 58 years old, and never heard that this is real, provable, definable, actual history, that God has moved on our behalf in the person of Christ. So if you are in that camp, questioning and wondering, and yet you actually are curious and searching, today believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there in your seat, just ask God to save you through Jesus. Believe. You say, Todd, why do you often do that? Why do you say from that platform, wherever you're seated, just pray and ask God to save you through Jesus. Repent of your sin and trust God. And a prayer like this, like, God, I believe that your son Jesus came to the earth, lived and died in my place, was raised again. And so I turn from believing anything but myself and I trust you, God, to save me through Jesus. Like, Todd, why do you say that and ask us to pray that while we're sitting here? Because that's actually what people do. One of our new members who joined, they have to give their testimony when they join. And to the person who was interviewing her, I think it was Pastor Travis. She said, well, here's when I was saved. I was sitting in one of those brown chairs. Todd just gave the gospel. And he said, if you've never said to Christ today, would you pray and ask God to save me? She goes, I knew I was lost. And I said, I do believe. And she goes, I prayed and asked God to save me. And that day I got saved. You see, a lot of times they think it's about a fanfare or walking an aisle or filling a card out. And maybe those are ways to indicate it. But here, here, here's the truth. God saves upon the posture of repentance wherever you're seating or standing. Amen. And right now where you're seated, if your heart is crying out to the reality that you're seeing in this text, the historical prophetic spiritual reality that God moved on your behalf through the real person of Jesus Christ, man, just ask God to save you and he will do exactly that right where you are sitting. Here's some other things we can do as a response. We can celebrate confidently. Let me speak now to our church members in general. You don't need to worry about how the culture, watch this, dismisses the facts about Jesus. They don't just minimize them anymore. They just dismiss them. They would never dismiss Caesar Augustus or Quirinius or Bethlehem or Herod. But yet they dismiss Jesus as if it's a myth. I just want to say to you, uh, be done with that. Celebrate confidently. Say Merry Christmas to everyone. Say Merry Jesusmas. Say Merry Christmas. You have solid, historical, reliable ground to stand on that this event occurred in real time and space and God moved on our behalf. So celebrate confidently the real reason for this season. Let me say to our families, here's another response we can have. Communicate concretely and distinguishingly. Now, what do you mean by that, Todd? One of my fears is that sometimes in the Christian community, the Christian church, we can morph and meld together the mythical, the production with what is actually God's revelation, the supernatural. And I want to warn us and caution us not to do that. I told you I'm not against make-believe and imagination. I think that has their place. I'm fine with it personally. But I don't want to unintentionally communicate to my children, like, you know what? It's kind of all one big pot. There's this guy with the red suit. There's Jesus. Bad idea. Uh, communicate distinguishingly and concretely. There is imagination and there's production. We can have fun with that. And then there's actual revelation from God in the person of Christ. It's true, rooted in reality, and we must believe this. Does that make sense? I mean, so keep them separate. Do not let them kind of just kind of make one big holiday tradition. I know sometimes in our houses we have nativity scenes. 
right next to something else that may be more cultural. Nothing wrong with that, but make sure your kids know. There's distinct differences between the culture's production of Christmas and God's revelation that we celebrate at Christmas. Amen, church? Here's another response. We can grieve hopefully. You know, this Christmas will be hard for some folks in our church. It'll be the first Christmas that they'll have without one of their loved ones being here. Their believing loved one has died this year, gone to heaven. And so there'll be an empty chair, an empty place. It'll be harder for them this year. On December 24th, 25th, while many of us are, are joyful, and we should be nothing wrong with that, they're going to think back to October or July or February when their mom or their dad or their child died. And they're facing now a holiday that's just a little harder. It's different. There's a hole that we can't fill. I want us to be cognizant that that kind of grief isn't grief only. It's grief with hope because Jesus is real. One of the ways that we as elders want to make sure that we are cognizant of that is most Christmases we'll uh, ask if that's you, if you have a believing loved one who's gone on to heaven this year and this Christmas is different for you. We have an ornament called the Home for Christmas Ornament. We just invite you to stay for the service for a few moments. We'll give you an ornament. We'll pray with you, chat with you, and just have some moments to talk about that. Um, it's just a way to be aware that, you know, God's presence is, is here with me in the middle of a different kind of holiday. That believing loved one is actually home for Christmas, yes. And it's harder for those who are here and kind of adjusting to a different style. But because Jesus was actually born, actually lived, died and rose again, and now lives in heaven, interceding for us, guess what? That means there's hope. Death is not the end. So we can actually grieve with hope. One last response we could give is we could give generously. You know, you're never more like God than when you give sacrificially. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world, say it with me, that he gave. And I can't think of a better time to be extravagant than Christmas. Now, let's be honest, extravagant's a relative word. For some, it may be $10 or a small gift, in, you know, relatively speaking. For some, it could be a larger gift. It may be $1,000. I'm not trying to put an amount I'm asking that the posture of your heart be this at Christmas. And I want to be generous because God was generous with me. In fact, Romans 5, 6 says this, that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The generosity of God is on display at Christmas when Jesus came with the mission of the cross in mind. So, so I think responding with generosity is a great response to this text. So just five simple ways that we can respond to the Merging of history and prophecy. Believe boldly. Celebrate confidently. Communicate concretely, distinguishingly. You can grieve, hopefully, and you can give it generously. These are all proper actions and responses. Because history and prophecy culminated when Christ was born. This idea of and, and an affirmation, this belief in the reality that Christ, the Messiah, was born in Bethlehem at this exact moment in history is what William Dix came to believe when he recovered from a very long illness. He also was living in the 1800s. You don't know who William Dix is, you will in a moment. 
Uh, he was near death with an illness. It didn't take his life, but he had a long recovery ahead. And as he recovered, he began to think about death and life. What's the point and the meaning and what's real and not real? And he read the Bible and he pondered what it said. He came to this conclusion near the end of his recovery that Jesus, born in Bethlehem, was the Christ promised in the Old Testament. That history and prophecy did culminate at the birth of Jesus Christ. And from that spiritual regeneration during his physical recovery, he wrote the Christmas song that all of you know. What child is this? His song was, a, was an answer to his own question that he wrestled with during his long recovery. And his answer is the same one as Luke's. This, this is Christ the King. Whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. Jesus was born. God's proof, the Christ has come. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.